Good morning, Twin Cities Church. I'm very thankful that we have the technology that we do to continue to be able to uh, be together in some way, to uh, share in um, coming to an understanding of the scriptures and deepening in our knowledge of God, even in, in such trying times of these that are keeping us from, from sharing uh, time with each other in each other's presence. Uh, today we'll be working out of Psalm 91. And before I begin, let me pray. Lord God, we do believe that you are king over all things in heaven and on earth. God, that nothing is outside of your power, nothing is outside of your sight, Nothing is outside of, of your control. And so, God, today as we look at Psalm 91, which has some extremely bold uh, and strong statements about your love and care for us, Father, our, our prayer is that you will indeed help us to understand you, help us to know you, help us to receive this word as you intended. God, strengthen us uh, in these trying times, strengthening us in these, in these times where really very few of us, if any, have experienced anything like it. We ask, God, that you would strengthen us to be courageous, that you would strengthen us against fear. God, we ask, ask that you would strengthen us uh, to love, to love those in need. We ask, God, that you would uh, strengthen us as we, as we look in this word. Help us to understand you. Help us to understand what it has for us. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, and no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him 
my salvation. The word of the Lord. As with many of you, I've been reading quite a bit of news lately. And as is the case for many of you, I would imagine probably too much news. Some of it is informative and quite helpful, but a lot of it isn't. But I did run across an article this week by Thomas Friedman, one that I found fairly helpful. It's called Our New Historical Divide, B.C. and A.C., The World Before Corona and the World After. It was a generally positive article commenting on trends that the coronavirus is necessarily forcing upon us and that will have a powerful effect on shaping our future once we have overcome this this global pandemic and life has settled into a very new and probably very different normal. And that's an important future to consider. There will be life after the coronavirus. Whether it's at the end of March, which seems to be fairly unlikely, the end of summer, hopefully, or 16 to 18 months from now, when a vaccine has become widely available, as some predict. There is going to be a new normal once this emergency has subsided. We will look back on this strange time and we will ask ourselves, how did we do? And I think that the criteria we're going to use to evaluate ourselves will not be how well did our investments fare. I don't think we're going to be wondering whether we physically survived or not. I don't think we're going to be evaluating ourselves based upon how much food we were able to buy in store or whether we made it through with enough toilet paper. I think that our criteria for evaluation will most likely revolve around one question that we're asking ourselves now. Am I going to be okay during and after this pandemic. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of us are not confident in how we would answer that. But I think that all of us would like to be able to say that we fared well through this, uh, that we have no reason to be ashamed of, of, of how we acted or, or really how we felt during this time. I think that we'd like to be able to say that, that we emerged in the after-corona world as, as better people than we were than before. Here are some of the things that I would like to be able to say in the after-corona world. I would like to be able to say that our, our trust in God and our gratefulness for his care in the midst of adversity grew. That we were calming and strengthening forces in the relationships around us. 
that our families grew in love and care for each other and for those in their spheres. That, that we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, and that we were able to meet the pressing needs of others in the midst of this adversity. That we submitted to the, to the direction of our government authorities without grumbling. That we were faithful and persistent in our prayers for those in positions of government authority, so that God would bless them through this time with, with wisdom. I'd like to be able to say that we grew stronger as a church and more grateful uh, for each other and each other's presence in our lives. And that we prayed for the gospel to advance and took opportunities as, as God provides to tell of his love and his faithfulness. But how can we progress through this season, regardless of how long it lasts, becoming more calm, more steadfast, more patient, more loving, more grateful, and more generous? Now, as we all know, we can only demonstrate qualities that have been demonstrated to us. We see in the scripture that, that we're able to love because we were first loved. As we saw last week in Psalm 46, the peoples of the nations of the world grew anxious and unstable in the midst of trouble and adversity. But God calls us to be still and know that he is God. Our knowledge of God strengthens us to remain calm, still, and steadfast in the face of challenges that bring the world down. Now, we don't know how the next weeks and months will unfold, but it is very likely that the challenges are going to become more difficult. I want to encourage us to to strengthen ourselves and to prepare ourselves with the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God strengthens us to be still and to know that he is God. Let's be strengthened in the knowledge of God so that we're able to stand firm in the midst of this adversity and emerge in the after-corona world without shame, strengthened and better off through the strength that God can only provide. So how do we combat fear and put on the courage needed for the days ahead? Psalm 91 expands on the encouragement from Psalm 46. It is broader in terms of the challenges faced and even mentions epidemics and plagues as sources of danger and fear. And its declarations about God's protection and the security that he provides are even stronger, more specific, and more comprehensive. Now, the psalm begins with a strong declaration of the psalmist's confidence in God's ability to hide, to shelter, and to protect those who love him. Now, that capability that God has is, is not because he's created a, a physical structure or has unleashed uh, actual physical armies, 
to protect us. It says that, that God's capability of providing that shelter and refuge is through his presence, through being in his shadow. And because of his confidence in his place in God's presence, the psalmist is able to say, God, you are my refuge. You are my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, a refuge is a place where we go for, for safety and security. And the, the word fortress here refers to a, a mountain fortress, a, a mountain installation that provides an advantageous defensive position against enemies that can only come up the hill uh, in order to attack. So the psalmist declares that God is where he runs to for safety, and he sees that God is this impregnable mountain fortress fully capable of defending him against any, any attack that would come. So verses 3 through 13 then go on to give reasons for his strong confidence in God being able to do these things. Now verses 3 through 6 make very specific statements about God's protection. It says that he will deliver you. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. That's the first thing. A fowler is someone who traps birds. So this is in reference to, to traps that people may set against the people of God. He says that God will protect us from those traps. He says that, the, that God will deliver us from deadly pestilence. Now this is in reference to, to forces that are not of human origin. And they specifically refer to a plague. Plagues are overwhelming. They are indiscriminate in their effect and in their destruction. And God says that, that we will be protected from these things. The text says that God is going to cover us. The first image he brings up, he says God is going to cover you with his pinions. Pinions are essentially the, the wings of a bird. And the image here is of a, of a mother bird that protects her chicks from outside forces. So the text wants us to imagine that God is this, this, this mother bird that has brought her wings over her young chicks to protect them against any forces that may come. And then the text says that God's faithfulness, his consistency, his his, his, his undying love is as a shield and as a buckler. These are protective items that are, are used against specific attacks that would come against God's people. And it says that God's consistency, his faithfulness, is a protection for those who hold to him. The text then go on, goes on to say that you will not fear. The first thing it mentions is the, is the terror of the night. This seems to refer to the dread of darkness. Now, this is not necessarily something that a lot of us experience on a regular basis, or if very many of us at all. When you're in utter darkness, it is frightening, especially when you are a place that is potentially dangerous or even just unknown. Some of you have probably visited the boundary waters 
no light. The moon and the stars at night are maybe behind clouds, and it is literally utter darkness. You're in an unfamiliar place. You begin to feel afraid. I'm sure many of you that have, have made those trips to the Boundary Waters <clears throat> or a similar type of experience have felt that. I'm not talking about lying in your bed at night with the lights off or getting up in the middle of the night and not being able to see. It's talking about being alone in utter darkness in a strange place where danger lurks. And that is the terror of the night. The text says that you will not fear that terror. The text then goes on to say that you will not fear the arrows that fly by day. So in contrast to the things unseen that could happen to you in the night, there are the things that are seen that are coming at you and that also create fear because you can see them. They're coming from human forces. And then it says, You will not fear the pestilence that stalks in darkness and the destruction that wastes at noonday. So there are forces of destruction like this pandemic, like viruses, like plagues, like disease, that any time can come at you and bring destruction. Verses 7 through 8 describes anticipated experience in the midst of what it seems to be an overwhelming onslaught. It pictures being in what seems to be the middle of a battle. You have this picture of enemies that are falling by the thousands right next to you, but you're able to remain unharmed. <clears throat> the destruction coming upon the enemies is referred to as the recompense of the wicked. So this is in reference to judgment that is coming upon them because of their evil deeds. For those who shelter in the presence of the Most High, they do not need to fear the judgment of God against the wicked. And verses 9 through 10 reiterate a statement of God's protection because of the reader's commitment to dwell in the presence of God. It's important to highlight this this conditional nature of the statement. It begins with, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The promises of protection and security made in this psalm, they're not for everyone. They're not for those who are just a part of the nation of Israel, or we would say they're not, they're not for those who just kind of come to church. They are for those who, who truly dwell in the shelter of the Most High. The promises are for those who have put their trust in God and who seek Him as their refuge. For those who make God their refuge, the text is saying no evil will come to them, no plague or epidemic will come into their homes. Now, verses 11 through 13 explain an aspect of how good God works to provide this protection. The psalmist explains that God commands his angels to look toward our concerns and needs. And throughout scripture, we see that angels are these, these uh, invisible, uh, heavenly beings, forces of good that, are, that, that, that God has um, for the accomplishment of his purposes and and for the care and protection of his people. They work to protect uh, God's people from 
even striking their feet against a stone, uh, and, and from being hurt when they walk in the midst of lions and snakes. The concluding verses, verses 14 through 16, are, are an actual statement from God himself. And these are, these are beautiful verses. They express God's commitment to those who hold fast to him in love. God is speaking about the person who abides in him, who seeks him as his refuge. The phrase, holds fast to me in love, is a phrase expressing a deep affection, an affection like between lovers. The psalmist is, is speaking to those who are, who are oriented to God in that way. And, and God protects this person because this person really knows him and really clings to him. And in response, in response to those that, 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 that love affection from people, God does the following for those. It says that God answers when he's called upon. It says that God will be with him in times of trouble and will actually rescue him and hold him up above the trouble. It's, God says that he will bless him with a long and satisfying life. And that, and that God, God says that he's going to prove to him and show him what it means to experience salvation from the hand of God. So these, these words reflect a, a loving and, and urgent and protective response by God for those who love him, who hold fast to him in love, and who seek him as their refuge. Now, I have to admit that when you read through psalms like this, it's hard to believe them. No harm will befall us. We can walk in the midst of snakes and lions without being hurt. The text even says that I won't even stub my toe. Those are really unbelievable statements. Too good to be true. So how, how do we soundly interpret these statements to receive the message that God intends through this psalm without what I think could be two knee-jerk and uncritical responses? One of them would be, man, we can't take any of this seriously because it really is so unbelievable. And those statements, uh, they're too good to be true. Or we can take them exactly, literally, and conclude that, hey, if I love God, nothing bad will ever happen to me. Now, clearly the psalmist's intent is to, is to press its reader to hold fast to God in love so that they would be able to grow in their confidence of God's protection of those who know their know, who know God's name and who dwell in his presence in order that they would be able to overcome fear in the presence of harm in the presence of trouble now if if we were to apply these statements in our present day situation could we say with certainty that if we hold fast to God in love, we wouldn't get COVID-19? That, that if we 
seek God as our refuge with a great deal of, in, of intentionality and, and fervor, that, that we're going to have all of the things that we need and that we'll never feel any sort of insecurity. If we were to look at the lives of those in Scripture who certainly held fast to God in love, you could just take three, three people, Job or Paul, or Jesus, we could certainly not see from these examples or even any of their teachings that would conclude that if you loved God fully, you would never experience disease or physical harm or even death. These guys and many other examples throughout Scripture of people that were devoted to and, and, and loved God they experienced hardship, they experienced suffering, they experienced physical harm, they experienced death. So how do we interpret this psalm? What is the psalmist really saying, and how does it fit with the rest of biblical teaching? Well, here is a summary of what I believe the psalm is saying. I think there are five things. Those who hold fast to God in love will not fear. That's the first thing. The psalm assumes that we're going to be in the midst of fearful things. We will experience threats from seen and unseen enemies. We will experience threats from sickness and disease. The difference to those who hold fast to God in love is that they will not fear these things. And this is possible because of the promise that God has made to not let evil befall us. Now, I think that at the core of our fear of these things is the belief that we are going to be overwhelmed by evil forces, whether they are unseen spiritual forces or just bad forces. I think our fear is that we're going to be overwhelmed by them and that we have no power to withstand what will come against us and we won't have anything to fall back on. We won't have anything to protect us. We will be completely overwhelmed. And this is specifically saying what is not the case. This psalm is overly emphatic on God's consistent and faithful and steadfast protection of us. God provides those who love and hold fast to Him a sense of His protection and His security that assures that bad forces, that evil forces, will not have their way with them. Now, some commentators believe that the terror of the night is in reference to evil spiritual forces, the counterparts to the angels that are good and righteous spiritual forces on God's side. That may or may not be the case. We certainly know from the rest of Scripture that there are evil spiritual unseen forces that work against God and His people. But even so, in the dwelling place of the Most High, those evil forces will be held at bay. 
we can resist fear because we are always being sheltered by God and his power and his presence and his forces. Anything that befalls us, any, any negative, harm, harmful threats that come against us, they are always within the sovereign power and authority of God. They are always within his protective care. They will never overwhelm us. The second thing is that those who love and hold fast to God as, as their refuge will not face the judgment of God that he is waging against the wicked. Some of the described sources of harm in this psalm, as I have mentioned, are, are forces that God has against the wicked in judgment. The thousands lying dead and the plagues seem to refer to the, the, the various instances of Scripture where it refers to God's judgment of, of Egypt and other nations that were wicked and that were harming his people. Those who shelter in the presence of God and hold fast to him in love are not the wicked. We have learned that God brings desolations to the nations, and we may stand in the midst of those desolations, as we saw last week in Psalm 46. But he says, in the midst of the judgment of the wicked, that harm is not going to befall the righteous. The third thing that I think the psalm is saying is that those who hold fast to God in love will have help from God and his angels when we experience trouble. Again, the psalm affirms that those who find refuge in God will experience trouble. What we do in the midst of the trouble determines where we are at with God and will determine our experience of his protection and security. Do we seek him for shelter and refuge? Or do we turn to other things? Do we hold fast to God in love or do we hold fast to other things for security? Do we love other things for security? One of the, one of the really beautiful aspects of this psalm is in verse, verse 14. It's this imagery of holding fast in love. I've, I've mentioned it before. It's the imagery of lovers. Do we have an affection for God like that? Do we, do we long for a sense of his presence like we long for the presence of someone we love? Do we long for his, his care as we long for the care of someone else? Do we yearn for that experience as we yearn for the experience of love from the, from the person that we are most in love with? Do we yearn for the sense of security from God like we yearn for a sense of financial security, like we yearn for health and vitality? The promises of this psalm are for those who have this type of a relationship with God. And an aspect of that is that, is that God's hosts of angels are sent out to care for us. So those who hold fast to God in love experience the power of, of God's forces to care for us. Again, we see this throughout the Old and New Testaments. Sometimes the, the angels do some things that people are aware of, 
in the seen world, sometimes these angels do things that that the recipients of, of those works are not aware of. I would say that most of the time, we're not aware of it. But the text is clear. God has spiritual forces, angels, beings, um, that do his bidding for our care and protection and provision. The fourth thing, the text says that those who hold fast to God in love will have a full and satisfying life. Now, as we have seen throughout this series on the Psalms, the promise of the prosperous and happy life is once again expressed here. It's a consistent theme. And really, as we learned in the first week, it is one of the primary intents of the Psalms to drive their readers towards a, a, a prosperous and happy life because they have put their trust in God and his word. They have delighted in him. The promise is that those who hold fast to God and seek his presence in times of trouble will experience an inner satisfaction and happiness that only God can provide. They will also experience the fruit of God's intentional actions to use the powers at his disposal to rescue and save those who call out to him. Now, our experience of this grows and enhances and becomes increasingly clear to us. The more we mature, the more we experience God's love and care, the more we call out to him in times of trouble. And increasingly, as we, as we live this kind of life, we increasingly see that our life is indeed full and we are indeed satisfied with it. Now, it makes a statement here that, that we could argue against. Um, it says that they will have a long life. Well, clearly we know that there are people who die prematurely that love God. And, and, and as, as it's wisdom literature, and, and wisdom literature... Um, isn't full of specific promises that are true 100% of the time. The wisdom literature um, is teaching and promising what is, what is generally true and is the case. There's always going to be exceptions and special instances, but the, generally what is true and generally what is the case is that the people that know and love God and hold fast to Him will live a full and satisfying life that he characterizes as long. Finally, the fifth thing is that the psalmist is saying that those who hold fast to God in love will experience deliverance in the midst of suffering in the form of courage and joy that testifies to God's sustaining power in their lives. And this is really a culmination of, of all of the previous statements and one that we've seen throughout the Bible. While the psalm certainly teaches that God rescues us from trouble and that he mobilizes his angels to do just that, we also know from experience from this passage and from the rest of the Bible that deliverance is not just understood as being removed from trouble. As we saw last week in the person of Paul, deliverance for him was experiencing the power of God to remain courageous in the midst of suffering, so that he could honor Christ 
and continue to be a witness of the power of the gospel in his life, a power that expresses itself in joy and thankfulness even in the midst of suffering. And if you remember, uh, for those of you that have worked through the Colossians material in our house churches, that is the exact prayer that Paul prays in chapter 1, that we would have the power to endure suffering with joy and patience and thanksgiving. Now, it has always been God's desire for the people that he created to dwell securely in his presence. When God first created man and woman, they lived in his presence and enjoyed the protection and provision that he gave them. But humanity chose to not hold fast to God in love. And they chose to hold fast to something else for security, for courage, for provision, and for satisfaction in life. We are easily deceived as human beings to think that created things, things like food, things like shelter, things like money, things like health, things like weapons, are going to provide the security and the satisfaction that we're looking for. But they can't. We can easily see this uh, in our own selves right now. We are seeing shortages in stores. And it's not because there are actual shortages. I talked to the, to the employees and, and, the, and, the, and the clerks in the grocery stores, and I have a friend who runs a, a butcher shop, and I, and I ask, are there really shortages? Is there really a, a lack of, of food? It's not the case. There are shortages, there are empty shelves, because out of fear, people are hoarding. But how much do you have to have in, in order to actually feel secure? In, in a worst-case scenario, they are saying this, this way of life could be our fate for possibly the next 16 to 18 months. Are we able to store 16 to 18 months or even buy 16 to 18 months of food and, and toilet paper? You know, th these days you get home from the grocery store, even with a little bit more than you usually get, and you wonder, did I get enough of this? Did I get enough of that? And, and as you're leaving the grocery store, you see people with, with even more than you do, and it, and it creates a little bit of fear and anxiety. It's, oh, I should have gotten more of this. I should have more of that. Look at that person. We, we have these feelings because these things do not and cannot provide that sense of security, that sense of protection, that sense of satisfaction and provision that only God can provide. In fact, the more we get of these things, the more worried we become about not having enough. Why is that? Well, we're feeding these longings with things that can never meet the longing. And this increases the sense of longing. Because we're working so hard to satisfy it, and it's not being satisfied, so we think that we just need to do more. 
And it's an endless cycle that only breeds more fear, more insecurity. God has provided the security and the protection that we're looking for. Moving well beyond the limits of a dwelling in a shared place with Him, God has provided unity with Him through His Son. His Son who who came to earth as a human being and held fast to God in love as He experienced all of the suffering of humanity, including death. He left the presence of God so that we could once again be in God's presence. But not just in sharing a place with him as the first humans, but being one with God. We can be one with God, unified with God, as Christ is unified with him. That is the promise that God has given to us through the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that faith in Jesus Christ unites us with him in his death. The death that he suffered in payment for our betrayal of God. We were made to hold fast to him in love, but we didn't hold fast to him in love. We held fast to something else. We betrayed God, which put us in debt to God. We owed him. As we learned a few weeks ago in Psalm, I believe, 47, that debt was paid. Our lives were ransomed by the price and the payment of Jesus Christ's life. If we believe that the, that the payment of Jesus Christ's life for our betrayal of God, for our adultery against God, was enough. The Bible teaches that we are united with Christ in his death and in that payment. Christ has made the payment for us. And then the Bible also teaches that if we believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that payment that he made, the Bible teaches that we are united with Christ not only in his death but also in his life. And Jesus Christ right now dwells in perfect unity with God at the right hand of God as he sits in authority over all things in heaven and on earth, over all beings, visible and invisible. Nothing is outside of the authority and protection and care and sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that we can be one with him through faith in Christ. And that's where those who hold fast to God in love are. That is, for those who seek refuge in God, that is where they are, in his presence. Yes, we will experience fear. Yes, we will experience hardship. Yes, we will fail. We will fail in our faithfulness. But Jesus Christ has been faithful. And our faith is not in our own faithfulness to stand secure. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, who is always faithful, who is always consistent, who is always protecting, who is always caring. We will never be overwhelmed because Christ is faithful and that Christ is 
sitting as ruler and authority over all things. And so we, we conclude with the encouragement of this psalm. In times of trouble, seek God. Hold fast to him in love. Seek him as your refuge. Trust that Christ has gone before and secured that for you and has given that for us. Let me pray. Lord God, we do live in troubled times. We do experience fear. We do experience anxiety. But because of your word and of your spirit, of your promises and of your strength, God, you continue to draw us back to the strength and the security that you provide. And we're thankful, God, for your steadfastness toward us in the midst of this. God, we do pray, uh, strengthen us to increasingly find our refuge in you. Strengthen us, God, against selfish responses to the challenges and, and, the, and the suffering uh, and the hardship that is before us. Strengthen us, God, to look to the interests of others um, as well and to consider others better than ourselves. God, that we could emerge uh, from, from life uh, at this time into the after-corona world uh, without shame, uh, delighting and grateful for your deliverance of us. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.